You're tuned in to the Living Hero Podcast at livinghero.com. Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today our program brings you a conversation with Dr. Philip Zimbardo, one of the most distinguished psychologists of our time. Dr. Zimbardo served as president of the American Psychological Association. He designed and narrated an award-winning PBS series, Discovering Psychology. He has published his work in more than 50 books and 400 professional and popular articles. His books include Shyness, The Lucifer Effect, and The Time Paradox. A professor emeritus at Stanford University, Dr. Zimbardo has spent 50 years teaching and studying psychology. World-renowned for his controversial Stanford prison experiment, Dr. Zimbardo is currently president of the Heroic Imagination Project. I'm so pleased to invite you to share in this conversation. And please explain to our audience the term situational forces. Well, when we try to understand anyone's behavior, including our own, the question is, do we focus on things inside the person, namely personality traits, character, response style, or do we focus on things around the person? And it's really sometimes called the person versus the situation analysis. Clearly, you should do both. That is, in every situation, a person or an actor, somebody's acting out some behavior, brings into that situation a whole lifetime of experiences, of personality, of unique traits. But in every situation, that person is surrounded by other people, surrounded by certain physical aspects of the situation, is often part of a group, is often part of a culture. And in general, my argument has been, we, meaning the general public, and even most professionals, tend to minimize the influence of situational factors, and we overemphasize the individual, because we all want to believe in individual dignity, individual free will, but all the research that I've done, and, and many of my colleagues in social and personality psychology say that all behavior is always a product of the interaction of what a person brings into the situation and what a situation brings out of that person. Mm-hmm. Now, the Stanford Prison Experiment revealed a number of different coping styles to the stress of this novel and dehumanizing environment that you set up. Can you please talk about what you have learned about the situational forces that bring out the worst in people? And then maybe we'll move on and talk about those that bring out the best in people. Yeah, you see, this old, little old experiment that I did back in 1971 was an attempt to pit these two kinds of explanations against each other. And so essentially... It was more like a Greek drama than a typical psychology experiment. And the Greek drama side was, what happens when you put good people in an evil place? Does the goodness of the people dominate the evil and transform it, or does the evil of the place come to seduce the good people? And so to that end, quickly what we did is uh, we got uh, a bunch of normal, healthy college students from all over the United States who happened to be in the San Francisco area, in the summer of 1971, gave them personality tests and picked two dozen who were, in fact, the most normal and healthy and, of course, intelligent students. 
and we randomly assign have to be guards and have to be prisoners in a mock experiment done in the basement of the psychology department at Stanford. But the prison that we, that we created was modeled after the worst features of American prisons, uh, with power as the dominant modus vivendi, uh, dehumanization, uh, a, a number of psychological traits that I had, had seen and studied in real prisons. And the, the prisoners lived there 24-7. The guards worked eight-hour shifts. We made it very realistic. We had Palo Alto City police actually do the surprise arrest of the kids who were going to play the role of prisoners in their dorms and homes. We had prison chaplains come down and public defenders. We had parents' day. We had parole day. And what happened, sadly, is the situation won and humanity lost. That is, many of the students role-playing guards became cruel, abusive, sadistic guards. Probably half of them did. And the guards who were considered good guards never interfered with the domination of the bad guards. Five of the prisoners we chose who were so normal and healthy had emotional breakdowns and had to be released. The first one in only 36 hours. And so the study was, was planned to go for two full weeks. And I had to end it after six days because it was out of control. That is... The worst abuses happen in the night shift when I, you know, I would have to go to sleep at some time. Um, and so when, when the guards realized there was no surveillance by the authorities, namely me, then, then uh, sexual abuses started, real degradation started. Um, so the conclusion of the Stanford Prison Experiment, which is described in great detail in my book, The Looser Effect, because I wanted, to see, I wanted the readers to understand how people could break the will of other people just with words. Because in the study, I prevented the guards from using physical force. But it didn't matter that even without any educational background in psychology or sociology, these young men understood that you can break people by creating an arbitrary environment, by dominating, by making people feel helpless and hopeless. And so the sad conclusion of the Stanford Prison Study is that in new situations, in novel situations where people don't have habitual ways of responding, the features of the situation often take over and come to dominate the way everyone in that situation behaves. You lay out a whole chart of types of heroes, people who overcome the, the situational forces that they're in and the risks that they take for the greater good. And you've consistently studied the nature of human nature, the ways in which humanity can be transformed by both power and powerlessness, real transformations of human character. You've said that any deed that any human being has ever committed, however horrible, is possible for any of us under the right or wrong situational circumstances. So my question is, what are your views on what's considered intractable character disorders where the capacity, the very capacity for empathy, compassion, and conscience are simply not there in the person? Yeah, that gets at a core issue in all of this, is that, you know, the conclusion from not the Stanford Prison Experiment, but also a famous study by Stanley Milgram in which he gets ordinary adults, men 20 to 50, and even women, to shock a stranger, to believe they were shocking a stranger almost, you know, to death, and many other studies. The conclusion of all those studies is that the majority, but not all, people put in those situations 
succumb to the power of the situation. They conform, they comply, they obey. Um, but in all of these situations, there's always some few who resist. There's also some few who very quickly, you know, within, within a very short time, get into the evil of the situation. So two ways to answer your question is, you know, focusing on there are, in fact, relatively intractable personality styles, um, uh, which make it easier for people to, uh, to get seduced, to be, to be domineering, dominating, uh, abusing. Um, certainly, the assumption has always been about 1% of all people, maybe everywhere, have a psychopathic personality style. That is, uh, they do not experience empathy with others. They do not have any well-developed sense of, of guilt. Uh, it could be, it, in some cases, it could be a failure of uh, brain mechanisms. In some cases, it's early life experiences. But, but those kinds of people are the ones that are readily recruited you know, for, um, to be torturers, to be executioners, to be you know, uh, murderous gang members. In part, these are people who can act without conscience. Conscience simply means an awareness of right and wrong. And they, they don't have a sense of right or wrong. They don't have a sense of, I act because I feel like acting, or I act because other people tell me to do it. But again, it's only 1%. It's only a very small percent. So we also tend to overuse that as the explanation for you know, the Nazis in Germany or um, many kinds of abuses. So a small percent of people who are primed, if you will, to do evil. On the other hand, there is, we don't know what percentage is, there's a small percent of people who for some reason we don't know, and this is what I'm studying now, are able to resist these powerful situational forces. They don't comply, they don't conform, they don't go along with the group, they're willing to challenge unjust authority. And those people I'm calling heroes. And my newest project, in fact, the mission in my, for the rest of my life, which I hope is going to be long, is to understand, to encourage, inspire everyday heroism. That is the heroism of ordinary people uh, to resist the evil in, in their country, in their world. I've noticed that the heroic nature often comes from some deep experience of oneness, some intimacy with life that can come about from all kinds of experiences, love experiences, experiences with animals, drug experience, near-death experience, spiritual awakenings. Was there something in you that really is a deep motivation for the work that you do? There's almost no research on heroism. There's a huge body of literature on aggression, on violence, on war, on what makes good people do bad things. There's almost no research on what makes ordinary people do good things. And so that's one of my missions in life. I've developed a, a, a group we call the Heroic Imagination Project HIP. We have a website by the same name, heroicimagination.org, that we are developing, trying to build out a team, getting funding to encourage people to be heroes and essentially teach them how. It's really an educational as well as inspirational program. So that's one thing. But we, we've just finished one research which says exactly what you were hinting at at the beginning is that 
of 4,000 Americans we surveyed in a random survey, about 20% engaged in behavior that would be considered heroic, namely uh, acting on behalf of others in need or defending a moral cause, aware of a personal cost, and without expectation of a reward. That's my definition. And of these 20% uh, who did this, a large percentage had experienced personal trauma or suffering uh, uh, in, uh, earlier in life. So, so for some people, I think that provided a background against which they, you know, realized uh, their maybe their mortality, their vulnerability, uh, or, or the injustice in the world at a personal level. And therefore, when the time came, because to be a hero, you need opportunity. So when the opportunity arose, they were the one who took the action to help save somebody else. In my own case, I've been interested in evil since I was a little kid because I grew up in the South Bronx, which was, is, hopefully won't continue to be, uh, an inner-city ghetto. And if you grow up in poverty in, in any, any ghetto in the world, you're surrounded by evil, by drugs, by prostitution, by gangs, uh, by violence, even by police injustice. Because for a cop, you know, everybody who lives there is the enemy, you know, until proven otherwise. And so I was always curious why my friends who were, I, I knew were good kids, did bad things. Uh, and so when I became a psychologist and had training, I could then begin to explore that question in experiments like the Stanford Prison Study. You know, why is it that ordinary people can be so easily uh, seduced to do bad things? And the conclusion I, I come up with is, you know, they get trapped in the power of the situation because they're unaware of group pressures. They're unaware of conformity uh, needs. Why I got interested in the heroic part, that's hard to say. Part of it, I think, when I was writing The Looser Effect, I was so ashamed at myself because to write the book, I went back and I reviewed all the videotapes, 12 hours from the Stanford Prison Study, and I was ashamed that I did not stop the study sooner. When the second boy broke down, I should have said, that's it, we've proven the power of the situation. And I let it go on. And, and now, in retrospect, I'm looking back and I said, what's wrong with you? And I realized I had been transformed by the power of the situation. I had been transformed from being the principal investigator to the inhumane uh, prison uh, superintendent. I didn't do anything bad, but I allowed, I permitted evil to exist. And, and feeling that shame, I said, oh, my God, this is just not me. I mean, I love students. Uh, you know, I care for people. You know, how, could, how could that happen? And so that started me to think, okay, you know, you know what can I do to really undo that, the negative of the same prison study? And, and the opposite of that is, you know, what can I help do to create climates that promote heroism. And I, and I started thinking, you know, most heroes are ordinary people. You know, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, these are extraordinary people who do extraordinary things, and that's why we know their name. Most people do heroic deeds probably only once in their lives because they only have a single opportunity, and we never know about them because unless, unless the media happens to be there when they do their heroic deed, they go unsung. We are developing educational programs, uh, research programs, to uh, train people, A, how to fortify yourself against the seduction to evil, which is everywhere, 
how to inspire young people to take the heroic path, and then how to coach them in what you do, so that what you do every day of your life steps toward heroism. You started talking about this at the end of the Lucifer effect, and I pulled the words self-awareness, situational sensitivity, and street smarts as the atmosphere that you would create to give rise to the seeds of heroism. And you probably have a lot more to say about these things now that you've gone forward with this work. And I looked at the website, and it's just absolutely beautiful, and so is the uh, brochure. So great work. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so I hope your listeners will look at it, too. And, and, and that's just the first stage. As we get funding, that's what we're going to build out. So the next stage is to have people actually sign up online to be heroes in training. We really would like young people to sign up, you know, with a buddy and uh, for various projects, you know, like health heroes, for example. If you can get a friend or family member to cut down or stop smoking, you save a life. You do as much as jumping on a railroad track to save somebody who's lying on the tracks or saving a kid from drowning. If you can get, you know, elderly people to take better care of themselves. So there are lots of things we can do to become on the path to heroism. But, you know, the, the situational savvy is really what can you do every day to promote what I'm calling the social habits of heroism? Because you have to be aware that other people have a need. So that means every day you have to be focused on other people rather than yourself. Narcissists care about one thing, me. Narcissism is all about me. And heroism is all about we. So that essentially what we want to say is, how do we transform people who in general in our society, our society pushes us to be narcissism, narcissists, you know, with, with you know, all the ads about being, you know, I got to be me and all songs and and everything about your uniqueness. And essentially we're saying, yeah, you want to be unique, but within a community of fellowship. And so how do we promote a, a sense of weeness? Well, step one is every day, what can you do to make somebody else feel special? Well, that's your job. And that means instead of focusing on me, what do I need today? So I have to look around, people I meet, you know, the bus driver, the cab driver, the person serving me in a luncheonette or in school, what can I do to make them feel special? Well, a simple thing, give a compliment. Well, that doesn't seem heroic. Well, it's not in and of itself, but it's the start of paying attention to other people. And compliments are, have an enormous impact. People smile, they smile back, they will remember you the next time you, you go. And it's as simple as, gee, those are lovely earrings. You know, where did you get them? They, uh, you look, they, they look great on you. Just something about their dress, their appearance, their hair, their eyes. And on our website, we're going to teach you how to give appropriate compliments. So that's just a small way that we're trying to promote a sense of social awareness, social savvy. And once you do it, it becomes habitual. That is, you know, you are the one that, in any place who is going to make people feel good. And you just think about it. It's so rare people give compliments anymore. It's not clear why, but when you do, the impact is immediate and typically reciprocal. People almost always say, hey, that makes me feel really good, or... Or, hey, I always like the way you dress. Or, you know, uh, you always have something smart to say. And then it, so it always blows back and makes you feel good as well. Mm. And you're teaching people that there is this other kind of power and this other kind of will that are the will and the power to do good and to bring happiness and to bring about a more pleasurable society. 
And I do want us to talk more about society because you talked a lot about the system, the societal systems that we have in place and, and the advocacy you have done already and are continuing to do to make change in the system. There is what you call administrative evil and the evil of inaction. What are the correlative phrases you're using on the positive side? See, what's really important now is what you just added is the third component, is that when we try to understand why somebody does anything, why somebody behaves as he or she does, the three things we have to be aware of is what does the person bring into the situation in terms of their background, their uniqueness? What are the features of the specific environment that they're in, the specific classroom, uh, the specific uh, family setting? And then what is the system that creates and maintains that situation. So psychologists have tended to ignore the system. And it's the interesting thing, the system is where the power is. So the system is the educational system, the correctional system, the military system, the um, you know, capitalism. The system is really the big picture in which situations are embedded. So we have tended to focus because it's easy to see, here's a person, here, they're in this situation. But if you want to change bad situations, you have to understand what's keeping them going. Uh, and then, so that means you have to understand, for better or for worse, how situations are creating them and maintaining them. Now, situations tend, like the mafia, to not want to have transparency. They often work in disguise. They often work, you know, if you will, sub rosa. So, so the counter is, how do you get situational transparency and integrity? For me, those are really the key uh, attributes. That integrity means that uh, you walk the walk. What, what you say you do, you actually do. That we can follow up and show that it's not simply a promotional slogan, but that you really do what you say. And the transparency is you make as much of the process of your company, of your business, public. And that it's not like all the stuff is off record because you're concealing so much. In order to pay less taxes, well, and in fact, in order to get away with simply promoting your organization rather than doing good for people. And so essentially, how do we as citizens encourage corporations toward integrity? And I guess it's really personal accountability that is, in an organization, the organization itself says, we are accountable to our stockholders, right? But then we are accountable to all of our employees in the same way that each employee has to be accountable to the unit it's in. And ultimately, the whole business has to be accountable to the general public. So it seems obvious when you say it, but I don't think we really have that concept embedded in, in our culture. I mean, the problem is, for most corporations, the accountability is to make profit for stockholders, and that's it. And now we're seeing where, certainly, where that ran amok in, the, uh, in all the financial uh, organizations that, that cheated, that lied, not only to their stockholders, but to everyone. There was no accountability. There was no integrity. And also, there was no oversight to keep them in line. All right, so how are we going to get your program into the public schools and into all the corporations? No, but that's, that's the idea. The idea is both. I mean, once we develop our website 2.0, uh, 
a lot of what I'm saying will be exercises on the website available for free. The kind of thing that we're trying to do since everything I do is research-oriented is we don't want to put out any stuff to the general public until we know it works. We're trying things in classrooms. We're starting middle school and high school, you know, uh, developing various programs, various courses, various activities. And as soon as we know it works, meaning there's some measurable positive change in behavior, then we put it online. So, for example, we are about to start this summer a program we call Tech Heroes. That is, high school kids are going to work with elderly in a residential care facility, Sunrise um, Residential Care Facility in Palo Alto, California, to teach them how to use the web, to develop their own website, how to get web access, how to search the web for medical information, for games, for fun, to be able to send email to their relatives. And we've gotten Hewlett Packard to donate uh, computers. So in and of itself, it's not heroic, but kids are, as part of a service learning program, going to go there regularly. They're going to develop not, not only mentor relationships with the elderly, but we think ultimately friendship. And at the end, each high school kid has to develop a video story about the heroes of their elderly. That is, what did the elderly people do that were heroic over their lifetime? Or who, who were the heroes of, of the elderly when they were in the, in the 1930s or 40s or 50s? And, and so once we know that, that it works, and works mean we, we know it will change the attitudes of the kids uh, toward the elderly. They'll be less negative toward elderly people in general. And we're sure it's going to improve the health status of the elderly. That's when elderly people talk about the good old times with younger people. There's a lot of evidence that their health status improves in many ways. But once we know that, then we're going to put out on the web, say, here's what we did, here's how we did it, here's the equipment we developed, here's the problems we faced, so that anyone can do it. Mm -hmm. And the media will pick up on that, I'm sure. To me, it sounds like it's, um, it's secular morality immersion. Oh, say that again. That's wonderful. Secular morality immersion. Wow, that is lovely. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. All right, that's for you. The main thing we need is some money. We, we have a few donations, but, uh, you know, to build out a big website like this, which would be international, yeah. um, the other thing we want to develop is something I call a heropedia, meaning we want to have in one place all the heroes in the world, all the, the well-known heroes, but heroes from every nation, ordinary people submitting ordinary heroes, a picture, a story about, you know, what their grandmother did or what their father did. Um, and then, we, you know, we'll have it vetted and have it available in different languages from around the world, mm -hmm. including controversial heroes. Like suddenly Christopher Columbus is a controversial hero, you know, uh, admired by Italians everywhere. But it turns out, in fact, in his own words, you know, they abused the, the Indians in America. They just wanted money. And they did terrible things. And the same way, even Alexander the Great, you know, by his, his name, he's the world's greatest hero. He did terrible things in some countries uh, where he took the resources from one town and gave it to another town because in the second town, that was going to be his return route, you know, back to Macedonia. But the whole point is to revive the interest and the excitement of what it means to be a hero. Uh, even f focusing on controversial heroes. Mm -hmm. I mean, is a suicide bomb a hero? Well, not in Israel, but surely in Palestine. Uh, and so, you know, so it says, you know, it's not such a simple designation. Uh, and just to make young people think about what goes into being a hero, well, it's 
certainly not simply being a celebrity, simply not being on uh, on entertainment tonight. Um, and you know, so heroes are really a special have a special quality that really ennobles the human spirit and should be inspirational for all of us. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly sounds like a good topic for conversation and debate among high school students and college students. Now, I didn't miss the fact that you said that you fear for the future of humanity if people don't really listen up to what you're teaching, you and others working on this. And so I wish to ask you about your sense of activism in this regard. Um, Reading between the lines of your work, I really do hear uh, an activist voice there calling for people to heroically stand up for their inalienable human rights at whatever cost to their own comfort and security. It's really actually very funny because... um what you're saying, you've, again, you've, you've, you've dug into my soul. Mm-hmm. I'm somebody who, in one sense, tries to be a non-activist because I have worked so hard in my teaching and my research. I'm, I'm usually doing more than I have time for. And so I have tended to avoid being a political slash social activist. And in fact, um, it was, I had a secretary when I was at New York University in the Bronx back in the 60s who shamed me into it. You know, she was saying, look, you know, you have a lot of influence here. You have to use it for good. I said, I don't have time. And she said, well, just come with me on this. We're picketing against, you know, some nuclear facility. I said, I don't have time. She said, do it once. So I did it once, you know. And then while you're picketing, people are saying, commies, go get a job, even though, you know, we're university professors. <laughs> and, and so you get more and more active, more and more involved. And so really it was, she was like, my mother with, with a conscience for action and, you know, saying, you know, you really, you know, now that you've done that, you know, what can you do, what can you do constructively? So I actually organized one of the first teach-ins against the Vietnam War back in, say, 1965, really early on. This was like an all-night teach-in, so it didn't interfere with schooling, starting at 10 o'clock. And literally, we had military people and political scientists and, and Buddhists and others come in, just talk about you know, why the Vietnam War was on the path to being a disaster. Uh, and then I organized a walkout at graduation in 1966 at NYU when the university was going to give Robert McNamara an honorary degree. This is the architect of the Vietnam War, who later in his memoir said the war was unwinnable, but we didn't know how to get out, so we just stayed in. Tens of thousands of American soldiers died because, you know, they didn't have a political solution to exit. And so that mobilized me. And then so I've been a reluctant activist. When I got to NYU again, I organized students against the Vietnam War and many different ways. The work you're doing is a form of activism. It's extraordinary work as a social change agent through your writings and your the group work you're doing now. That is activism as I see it. I'm thinking of activism meaning you got to be on the barricades. I mean, like you, but you know what it really does mean is that if you are activists, it means some portion of your time, some portion of your resources. You have to give money, you have to give time, uh, you have to meet with people, you have to organize against what you see as the enemy. And the enemy, for me, has always been war. I mean, since the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, you know, these are all wars we had no business being in. They were all politically contrived. They were not, you know, good versus evil in any, in any sense. 
It was not opposing, you know, Hitler and Mussolini and, and Hirohito. And they cost millions of people's lives. They tore the world apart. You know, and it was because not enough people early on said this is wrong. But it's all connected. The military, prison, industrial complex is all connected. Yeah, you know what's most interesting? General Eisenhower, who people kind of thought is not a very smart guy, you look back at it, many of his speeches, and they were really insightful. He said he feared, you know, the military-industrial complex as having too much power, you know, and had to be controlled. Uh, and now, you know, now it's a military-industrial big business. And again, the Bush administration fed into that. I mean, the Fed literally fed billions of dollars uh, into it, a privatized war so that we now have all these contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan making billions of dollars, in many cases we know doing illegal things. They want to privatize prisons, so prisons become money-making corporations. You know, prisons themselves are no longer places for rehab, they're simply punitive centers, uh, and the object is to keep as many people in prison for as long as possible, and when they get out, Within three years, 60 to 70 percent go back in. That's the recidivism rate, because prisons are not doing anything to make people better. They're doing things to make people worse. And I think maybe now there's a hope for change, because now that we can't afford prisons, now that people have to make a decision, do you want to have your tax money go for prisons or for your schools, uh, prisons or for transportation, people say, hey, maybe we made a mistake in saying, let's throw everybody in prison and throw away the keys even if they're on a drug charge, a nonviolent drug charge. So I'm, I'm hoping, uh, you know, citizens will wise up and say, the way prisons are being run are a failure. When my prison proved to be a failure, I was able to end it. And so we have to really change the basic conception of what prisons do, because what they're doing is, is failing society at the cost of trillions of dollars. So your program now, as I see it, will work to re-individuate and re-humanize and re-empower the individual citizen to stand up to unjust systems wherever they find them. And so just so we all know that that's going to butt up against the existing system, the work that you're doing. That's why I see it as activism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean... Systems have power. I mean, you know, when you blow the whistle on a system, you know, what you do is you typically lose your job, you don't get promoted, you're labeled as a fanatic. And so one of the things we argue is that learn how to be a, a hero within a team. When you do something alone, you can be dismissed as a dissident, as a radical, as a fanatic, you know, as mentally ill. Once you get three or four people to share your vision then it's a point of view. They can't dismiss you that way. And in fact, what we do know from Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and Gandhi is heroes are most effective in a network, in a team, in an ensemble. The Christians who helped Jews, they were only effective when they had a network because they had to move, move the people around from place to place, from farm to farm. You couldn't do it on your own. Same with the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad is a great example here. But, but somehow... The old notion of hero, and I think this comes from Joseph Campbell, is really the male warrior. It's Agamemnon, it's Achilles, it's Odysseus, who goes it alone. But I think that's really a male image of the warrior, even the politician, who goes it alone, and that's why we remember his name. But the heroes now, to be effective, 
should learn how to form a heroic team and ensemble. And again, what we're going to do on our website is have a section to teach people the principles of social influence. So that, so for example, bullying, the way you stop bullying is get a bunch of kids in the class where the bully is upsetting everybody in the class, and together they go to the bully and say, look, we know what you're doing, we don't like it, and if you stop, we're going to be your friend. And each kid in turn says, yes, yes, yes. And if you don't stop, we're going to make your life miserable. You have a choice. Well, I can't imagine a bully not, not stopping. Bullies typically do what they do because it's better to be feared than not loved. And bullies know that you know, something about them is not lovable, it's not likable. And so they, they're going to pick on the shy kid, the handicapped kid, you know, the, the kid who has some vulnerability. And bullies exist only because of the inaction of most people. And I call that evil. That is, when you do not act in the face of evil, you allow it to continue. So bullying has to be stopped at the kid level. You know, it's not through parents and schools and, and so forth and, and teachers and, and principals. The kids have to say, we don't like what bullying is doing to the fabric of our class. And we're going to stop and we're going to confront the bully. Well, you can't do that alone. Because bullies are bigger, stronger, you know, have more resources. But you get five or six kids to do it and you can, you can stop it. Nobody's done it. I mean, this is one of the things we will propose, on, again, on our website. We want to be able to promote all the related websites, uh, all the related projects. So, you know, there's myhero.com, there's giraffe.com. Uh, there's a lot of programs that have been in existence long before ours that provide stories about heroes. Ours is going to be unique because we're going to have the, the research component. For example, we, we're uh, soliciting money so that we can give fifteen, ten thousand $10,000 awards to students who want to do research on heroism. And, We'll provide a lot of uh, hypotheses, but they can come up with their own. So ours, we want to promote everybody else's website to say, hey, are you interested in, in um, heroes and kids? You should go to giraffe.com. It's a great website. Are you interested in inspiring stories about heroes? Then you should go to myhero.com or, uh, you know, my story. Um, or livinghero.com. Livinghero. Yeah, I mean, there, there are clearly many. What we're doing is not unique. I think the unique feature is it's the combination of education, research, and media that we're trying to, trying to combine. We are trying to create heroes rather than simply acknowledge, document, reward heroes. So CNN Heroes really is a wonderful program, but they acknowledge past heroes. We want to create new heroes. Well, you are performing a tremendous public service. And Thank you, I really appreciate your talking with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Special thanks for today's program go to audio engineer Charles DeMontebello of CDM Studios, New York. Living Hero is a production of In This Regard, a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas, which serves as our nonprofit umbrella. We receive funding and in-kind contributions from the Puffin Foundation and from listeners like you. Your contributions are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Please help us continue to offer and grow this program. To access our archive of interviews, to post your comments, and to help us fund future programs, visit us at livinghero.com. Thanks for listening.